Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today we have Devin Sisson, yes, the daughter of Primal Blueprint author Mark Sisson, who has prepared a really unique book and takes everyone sort of beyond the logistics of good cooking and kind of into the realm of intuition, which is something we don't talk a lot about when it comes to cooking. And this is really just more than a cookbook. It's about so many other interesting issues that we're going to get into today on this show surrounding cooking and things that can actually happen in your life that are so beneficial from beginning a process of getting into cooking if you haven't. So today we're going to discuss Devin Sisson's new book called Kitchen Intuition. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, Al. Yay. Uh, You know, for people that are curious, uh, I just want to throw out episode 164 that we did a couple of weeks ago with you and your brother. If people are interested in hearing Devin and her brother talk about, you know, growing up Sisson or really getting into more of the primal kitchen enterprise, which we will touch on later in the podcast towards the end, because Devin and her brother are opening up the first primal kitchen restaurant in Southern California this summer. But if you want in-depth details on that and or their life growing up Sisson, then check out episode number 164, because today we're going to focus a lot about the topics in this book. This is different than a lot of cookbooks. And I read a lot of cookbooks because we get them for free all the time and people send us their material and they're often great, but they don't have the sort of topics and nuances around this. So I guess I want to start off and just ask kitchen intuition. What is it about intuition and the kitchen? How does that title sum up what you were going for? Yeah, of course. And obviously, that's probably one of the first questions that people ask me. And there's a bunch of answers I have. But I'm just really excited to share what I've learned about myself and food and my relationships with people with my readers. And I sort of did that in a sneaky way by putting it as a cookbook, something that people love doing for the most part, cooking and eating together. But using your intuition in the kitchen for me is really just about getting to know your body, getting to know what you like and what you dislike, uh, what the people around you like, what they don't like, and incorporating it into your into your everyday. So an example of that for me might be using my body in the kitchen, using my senses. So how would you use your body in the kitchen? I don't recommend anybody scrambling eggs with their fingertips, but I, (laughs) you know, like tear up your lettuce, touch your food, you know, have some fun flipping pancakes and really feel the weight of a bottle of olive oil or a bottle of dressing or start to use your eyes and your ears. Listen to how things are searing or baking, poke your food, touch your meat, really get connected with it and get to know it so that you can develop a relationship with what you're putting inside your body. I really do like that. So many people just take the spice and throw it in the thing. And what a way to be present and have a level of appreciation for your food too. Absolutely. Let's talk about, you know, because you have several examples and we'll go through some of them, but let's talk about your personal relationship and struggles with food that led you to write this book. You've been very open and like you said, kind of snuck it in on a cookbook. What would you say maybe the main theme of some of your struggles have been? 
I guess learning what I like to eat and why I like to eat it. Obviously, my dad has had his opinions about food, his research, his own lifestyle. And I think I really started to get into all of this when I went away to college and it was all of a sudden about cooking for myself and feeding myself. And I thought, what am I doing? Am I eating this way because you know, my parents fed me this way because this is what I'm used to, or is, is this what I really like? And I think it was then that I started to think like, maybe I can eat this, maybe I can try that. And they were always things I never found in my refrigerator at home, whether they were healthy in a different way or not healthy at all. It really gave me a chance to, to experiment and to decide, do I even like broccoli or do I just think I should eat broccoli? That's a good one because a lot of people just eat broccoli because they think they should eat broccoli. So maybe there's another veggie we'd resonate with more, right? Like I'm with you on that. Sometimes I think we're so socially constructed that something's healthy, but you have to go, do I want it? And beyond that, it's like, do I want it? Should I eat it? Does it feel good when I eat it? And for me, you know, no brainer with broccoli. I actually love broccoli, but certain foods just don't feel good. And I I didn't know that because I thought I was eating them because they were healthy by some by some standard, but maybe it doesn't feel good and maybe what's healthy for you is not healthy for me. And what, are there some examples of something that you had incorporated in your diet because you thought it was healthy, but you're like, oof, that just doesn't sit well with me for whatever reason? That's a great question too. I think it changes, you know, depending on my stress levels, my hormones and where I am in life and in my relationships with people. But I know that one of the more recent things was kale. And there's a really amazing kale salad in my cookbook that at the time of writing it, I loved and ate all the time. Um, but kale was sort of the thing for a while, you know, like kale is the cool thing to have on a menu at a restaurant, the cool thing to make when your friends come over. But I started paying attention to how kale felt when I ate kale and it didn't really feel that good. So maybe for now, for this time in my life, kale's not my jam. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of just being able to hop on and off the train when something's not right. And, you know, it's so appropriate that your book is named Kitchen Intuition because, you know, one of the things we talk about with going primal or going down this path of getting healthy is that the healthier you get, the more it becomes about intuition in general. Totally. You know, because people always email your dad, they email us and they're like, just tell me what to eat. And you're like, ah, that's kind of not how this works. (laughs) And I I think your point is absolutely true. We're all told what we should eat, what's healthy. We read all these magazines, so we incorporate it into our life. But it's like, it's so much more fun to get even more intuitive with it and and try different things. Like, for example, I'm with you on the kale thing. And for me, I found that, like, I love, um, I would much prefer sautéed Swiss chard than I would sautéed spinach. Right. If I had to choose between the both. But, you know, people don't think about Swiss chard very often until I was introduced to it and started to kind of mess around with it. I didn't really know. But that would be my go-to over spinach, where maybe spinach in the past was eat your spinach. You know, so I'm I'm with you on getting intuitive what about, there's, there's so many different aspects and we'll get through some of them. Obviously we can't touch on all of them, but let's talk about this concept of the social aspects of food because, you know, your, your brother's a vegetarian and we talked about that in depth on the last podcast. And, you know, you and I were having a conversation at your parents' house about this. You know, you have different people coming over for, with different, whatever, allergies, preferences. How do you deal with that? And, and what are those kind of aspects of, of that? I mean, I think something I was actually thinking about this morning is somebody had asked me what influenced my love of food. And I kind of quickly answered that question with, well, food's delicious, but it's really because I love people and studying psychology in college and just being interested in friendships and relationships in general. One of the things I noticed was that food is just incredibly social for people. And 
historically speaking, tribes and communities and families, the time of day that you would often get together and be together is when you're, you know, go looking to find food, you're shopping for food, when you're killing your food, or when you're making it and when you're sitting down and eating it together. It's the time that you connect most with people that you love. It's the time a child first connects with its mother by way of breastfeeding. It's the first time that you might connect uh, intimately or romantically with with someone is over a dinner date. Uh, you meet with friends to have coffee. Um, you go out to lunch with your coworkers. It's a very social thing. And I realized how much I love people and food is always involved in that. Life is celebrated through food. Think about every holiday you've ever been to or celebrated, whether it's um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, Passover, you know, you name it, birthdays, uh, Fourth of July, you know, each holiday, each is, is celebration of life has certain foods that go along with it. And you invite people over to enjoy those things with you. I love dinner parties for exactly that reason. You know, I don't even know what's more fun, having everyone together or cooking for everyone. You know what I mean? Both are just equally great. And I would agree with you that the attendance of people and and that gathering is even more important than the food being served. But then there's this other aspect too, right? Where someone has an association, for example, like I remember even um, a a famous sort of one of these uh, self-help coaches, Gay Hendricks and his wife, Kathleen Hendricks. Gay Hendricks talks about how when he was younger, and his mom left for the first time and he was crying. They'd always give him like a bottle of milk with a little bit of bourbon and vanilla. And so that as he, when he got older, then every time he got upset, he went for vanilla ice cream. And then he was like, uh-oh, there's that association, right? So sometimes we also have some some sort of negative associations with certain patterns of food. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also one of the things I've learned is that, you know, oftentimes, at least as women, we we deal with breakups by eating a little bit too much or maybe not eating enough afterwards. And that's how we process emotions. We associate um, love and intimacy sometimes with chocolate. A lot of times people do have ice cream at, at the end of the day if they're feeling lonely. Certain food cravings match with certain emotions for people. And I think I also, I touch on that in my book. I remember having the chicken pox when I was younger and my mom called me from the grocery store and she said, you can have anything you want. What do you want? And I just remember being so excited inside, like, you're going to trust me <laughs> to decide to decide what I get to eat, like anything in the store. And immediately I said, I want Lucky Charms and Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. <laughs> and that's that that's that little girl in me that was like, you, I, I get to choose. You're letting me choose right now. And I just remember that excitement that I felt for this like sense of responsibility that I get to choose. And, you know, there's still a, a five-year-old in me with chicken pox that would love to live on Kraft Macaroni and Cheese and Lucky Charms. Sure. (laughs) And we'd probably end up being a mess if we kept on that train. But I hear you. It's like, especially when you're a little kid, you want all of the forbidden things that you see at everyone else's house and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure like in your house, you probably didn't grow up with sugar cereals. Oh gosh, no. Yeah. So you go to a friend's and you see Lucky Charms and you're like, score. I'm eating this the whole time I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm coming over here again. Exactly. You know, I, I love your your books about like, hey, try, you might fail, start to get comfortable. So at first when you started cooking, this was not something you were quite comfortable with, right? You were finding your own way with with being on your own and trying to figure out what was right for you. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Or were you always kind of crafty with cooking? I don't know that I was crafty, but certainly going through this journey of writing this book, people have asked me what got me interested in cooking. And I remember working in the cafeteria second, third, fourth, fifth grade. 
And at the time, I thought it was just so I could get out of class 20 minutes early every day and go to lunch. But there was like seven of us that had so much fun cooking for for the entire elementary school. And I really, I loved, I loved putting on an apron and a hairnet. I loved serving people. I loved, you know, seeing when the kids got weirded out about gray green beans and sloppy joe meat. But something about it was really fun for me. So learning to do that with other people and for other people as I got older was even more fun. And then realizing that my, you know, my parents didn't love cooking. They eat really well and they love good food, but I don't think either one of them really enjoys cooking. So for the most part, it was like, if you're hungry, fend for yourself. And I attribute some of my love of cooking to that and to them because I wouldn't have known how to cook otherwise. Interesting. What about uh, your book is very different than other cookbooks because you intentionally don't have units of measurement. Tell us about the decision to do that. And it's so funny because as the book was being edited and I went back and forth with people, a lot of my friends and family and editors that read it, they were like, you can't do this. People need to know cooking times and measurements and cups and tablespoons and teaspoons. And I thought to myself, look, I figured it out this entire time without even using those things because I would read a recipe. I would think I want to make lasagna tonight and I would read five different recipes, but I like mushrooms and I don't want to put meat in it. And I prefer pesto over red sauce. Then I like pine nuts over walnuts. And I just started to not follow other people's directions. I saw how they were guides and, you know, you probably shouldn't cook lasagna for 12 minutes or four hours, but I could, you know, I could work in the 30 to 60 minutes and just check things, try as I went. And, you know, I've made a a couple of lasagna dishes that I would probably never touch or make again, but I learned from that and I created new things from that. And I think then, too, getting rid of the units of measurement goes back to getting more intuitive, right? Feeling and doing the taste, a little sprinkle, maybe you need a little sprinkle more. Because, again, like you said, some people's recipes, you know, when you read a recipe online, you don't know that person's palate necessarily. You know what I mean? You can go to a five-star restaurant and have a chef not do something you like and just because it's a five-star restaurant. So what may be too much chili powder for you might not be for someone else. And so I'm more of the experimental instead of follow a recipe line by line anyway. And I like that you're leaving that open too, because you're leaving your recipes open for if people want to use more or less of something, right? I love to hear that. And that's exactly what it's about. And it's also about, you know, the idea to me that somebody could read a recipe in a book or online and think, oh, I don't have turmeric powder, so I can't make this recipe. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't have turmeric powder. What if you try curry powder? What if you try cumin? What if you try curry paste? Like substitute these things, whether it's a color you're trying to get or a smell you're trying to get or a flavor. There are other ways to enhance dishes and to to not make a dish because you forgot one ingredient is so silly to me. And I want people to feel comfortable exploring that and accidentally making something really delicious and really new that they might not otherwise have tried. And on that note, let's talk about the cauliflower risotto fail. You actually put a total failed (laughs) recipe in the book, which I think is hilarious. So tell us about that. Because I do like the idea that you're encouraging people, hey, fail, make mistakes. You're going to, you know, I mean, I've been cooking forever. I've made a million mistakes. I've cooked whole entire things and had to throw them out because I screwed them up. And I'm sure you have too. And that's part of it. And oftentimes, you know, if you cannot take it so seriously, it ends up in laughter and you get to learn from it or you decide that half of it was something you could save and turn into something else. But the cauliflower risotto fail, I, what I thought at the time was an original idea is 
instead of using rice, to use cauliflower to make this creamy risotto texture. And I love making risotto too, but I wanted to switch it up. How many more vegetables can I eat in a day? And using the traditional butter, Parmesan, little bit of cream, some white wine, I cooked the cauliflower similarly to the rice and I would in a risotto dish. And the pictures came out beautiful. To me, they just like it was a great shot. And then I tried the call. It was gross. It was disgusting. It tasted a little fishy. I'm not sure why. It tasted off. It was too soft in some bites and crunchy in others. But you know what? I know that I can't do it that way anymore because it's disgusting. And I got a great photo out of it and a really honest story to tell people. I could very easily put that in the book with some, you know, very tweaked recipe ingredients and switched it up and just told everybody, look, it came out awesome, but that's not the truth. And I wanted an example to share with people. I've been doing this forever. I do this, you know, two or three times a day. And yet I still oversell my salad dressing sometimes and I still overcook or undercook my salmon and it happens and it's okay. And I learned from it and it's, it's become a source of laughter with my boyfriends and my roommate and my family. And it's always a great learning opportunity. Let's talk about a little bit more of a serious topic. You touch on how you helped one of your friends with an eating disorder. Tell us about that experience. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, so her name's not Lolita, but that's our that's our secret name for her. And uh, I hope she's okay with me sharing this. But my best friend living in New York uh, actually lived above me in my building. So we both had our own apartments, but we were sort of roommates. Uh, We had met in college. And when I met her, she was in the middle of some sort of anorexia, bulimia disorder, whatever it was, she had an uncomfortable relationship with food. And clearly it was not healthy for her. You know, she was very, very thin, um, came to class looking tired. She often had dark circles under her eyes and she just didn't look happy. And eventually we became friends. And when we started living near each other, um, I would always be cooking. So I would invite her to come down and eat with me. And at first I could tell that was a source of tension or discomfort for both of us. She didn't want to eat. I wanted to eat. I had fun cooking. She didn't know how to cook. But after a while, I started to notice that I would invite her to come grocery shopping with me, to touch the zucchini, to help me chop the garlic. And it was very, very small things. And it was a slow process. But I started to try to help her almost talk about how good the food tasted and how healthy it was and how much it was nourishing our bodies. And at the time I thought I was doing it for her, but it was really for myself. It was really to get in touch with my food in a way that I hadn't experienced, but I did it with the intention of helping her. And she's doing just incredible now, just, just killing it in all areas of life. And I'm so proud of her. I adore her. And her relationship to food is much different now. And through this process has often texted me photographs of meals she's cooked on her own or places she's gone out to eat. And, you know, it brings me to tears every time I see that because she was not doing this three years ago. That is so touching because what a great thing for everyone to think about. I never thought about if you have a friend who's struggling in any way with that what a great idea to sort of even just take him to the grocery store and just to be able to look at food differently, like you said, even touch it, have a different relationship with it, even while that person might be watching you do it, even if at first they're not eating still, right? But again, it might eventually ignite a different relationship. I love that. 
Right. And it was, it was fun for me to do. I think she eventually saw how much joy I took in cooking and in eating. And, you know, she'll, she'll still tell me the story of when she was, she literally never grocery shopped before. And I was like, dude, but we can touch the kale and the lettuce and the radishes. Look how brightly colored the radishes are. This is awesome. And it was really exciting for me. And I, I was trying to share with her, but I was really just igniting it in myself. And I, you know, I have her to thank for that. I love it. On the note of what we were talking about before, maybe this is redundant, but I love how you you talk about the concept of guessipes. It's exactly what we were talking about before. So it's just sort of really more experimenting and just kind of making up if the ingredient's not there, maybe trying something else and just kind of make up as you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that also comes from not, I have a lot of not food restrictions, but just, you know, I would prefer to eat organic whole foods that come from the ground or eat off the ground. And a lot of foods that you love that don't have the greatest ingredients, whether it's some sort of casserole dish or pie or muffin or dessert or breakfast food, sort of waffle, anything that you would normally use processed ingredients for. It's like, I want to figure out how to make myself waffles that I can eat knowing they're going to feel good and be good for me. So I just decided to, to use my recipe technique, which I think is a term, but my dad coined it for me. Um, guess how much egg and apple and almond flour I'm going to put in my pancake and just figure it out. Yeah. I mean, because as you know, and I'm sure people listening too, when you're going down the road of trying to make a paleo primal like muffin or bread or something like that, it does take a lot of guessing to figure out the right combination because some recipes might call for one egg and you might need two or the the differences in flour. And I've had a lot of fails there too, but you finally do, you know, you'll get it right for you. And the experimentation is really a part of it because then you'll nail it at some point. I mean, even if you don't nail it the first time, it's like, you know, my, my waffles that I made the first 10 times we make them, I ate them as oatmeal because they were just falling apart and it was soggy, but something about the texture and the flavor, flavor combination absolutely worked for me. And it satisfied what the taste I was craving And now, you know, I've perfected the waffle thing. But again, I ate it out of a bowl as if it was oatmeal for the first 10 times I made it because it just I couldn't figure the consistency out. I was guessing every time. I love it. Let's talk about how universal is this approach. So, for example, like, would your book be applicable for someone who never cooked before or like can barely even, you know, boil an egg or is this for everybody? I mean, I would hope that this is for everybody. I would hope that world-renowned chefs could sit down and read this book and maybe not try the recipes, but have a different understanding of their own relationship with food. And from there, change how they interact with it and how they share it with people and maybe just change the way they think about it. So as much as this is a cookbook, I want people, I want my readers, I want my friends and my family to explore their relationship with food. Everyone has one healthy or not. And it can absolutely change how you feel in your body, how you are with your health, how you treat yourself, how often you do nice things for yourself. If you sleep well, if you exercise with as much energy and enthusiasm as you can or as you'd like to. But I would like chefs to be able to use it. I would encourage my friends to try it. I know they they all have, and I've certainly um, taking them hostage in my kitchen a few times to grate cheese and chop garlic and toss some salad. But I would also hope that somebody who's never cooked in their life would give it a shot, would see my transformation, would see my experience with food and with cooking. And, and even if it's just trying to hard boil an egg for the first time or 
you know, toast 10 pieces of toast before you understand how long it takes before the toast to burn and try to cook in it. You know, maybe don't experiment with filet mignon the first time, but find a way to, to get in the kitchen. And it's all about just releasing that fear you have around failing. And if you're not afraid to fail, there's really, there's nothing holding you back. And there's so many great benefits to eventually getting to the point where you feel good about the things that you're making. Because like you said, you know, the entertaining factor is always an extra wonderful thing. Friends are going to want to come over, you know, but I want to talk about something that I love too, that you touch on your book, which is kind of romance in the kitchen, you know, falling in love in the kitchen. I mean, I think cooking as a team effort between couples is one of the most incredible experiences. And I know you talk about that in your book too. Can you touch on that? Yeah, of course. Um, I think, I think I've realized that I don't think I could ever date somebody that doesn't love food. You don't have to love cooking, but you got to love eating it with me. Yeah. And there are people that sit down to a meal and don't seem to care about whether their salmon was sauteed or broiled or grilled or blackened or salted. And I don't understand that concept. You know, you don't have to have a preference, but to not understand the difference between those things is strange for me. And I want people to be able to pay attention to those things. And if simply just to understand their preference. And my experience of of falling in love with the kitchen and in the kitchen was um, I'd started, you know, I'd started dating somebody. uh, And within a few weeks of knowing each other, he said, you know, do you want to cook with me for my birthday for 40 people? At that time, I'd not cooked for more than eight people. And I thought, yeah, let's go for it. So we went grocery shopping. We went sort of last minute. We didn't have a lot of time. We didn't have the menu planned out. And every single thing we did was flawless. We just trusted each other when it came to how many onions you need for 40 people or how many pounds of swordfish or how many bunches of broccolini. We have no idea. And yet we asked and answered each other's questions. It went quickly and efficiently. We cooked in this beautiful kitchen together, barely spoke for the three hours it took us to cook, but just sort of communicating without speaking. And something about it was incredibly touching and romantic. I'd never felt so seen and trusted and encouraged and respected. And I felt like I was able to freely be in myself and to be just trusted and and loved to some degree through that experience. And what a great way to work together on a project. And you really do see people, you know, cause I don't know about you, but a lot of people feel this way. Sometimes when you're cooking in the kitchen, people come in the kitchen, you're like, get the F out of the kitchen. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have that, right? It's like, don't come, don't be looting over my shoulder. Get out of here. I, I got to do this. So when you have another person in the kitchen with you, you know, there can be stuff, you know, there could be stuff that could come up. So you also can really see a lot about someone's personality and see how well you work under, whether it be a stressful situation and trying to cook for 40 people or even just trying to manage dinner for the two of you. And I think you can really get to know a lot about a person that way. And I, I have had that experience myself. In fact, uh, one of my last relationship, one of the best things about it was we loved to cook together and it was always a great, wonderful plan. Like, what are we doing this weekend? And we tried things and we experimented and we failed. You know, we made marrow bones and they were terrible. Then we made them again and they were great. <laughs> and it was just fun. And we, you know, we'd even like, he'd send me a recipe during the week and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And we'd be like, oh yeah, let's try that. And, you know, so it was so much fun because it was sort of this great connecting. Like you said, you're you're trusted, but you're connected as a team and it's... um. I think some of the best personality traits and romance kind of come out. I mean, we joke, you know, it's foreplay. There you go. It is. 
it's so much fun and something we both enjoy. And I have to say, I can feel that I'm a little bit of a micromanager in the kitchen. It's a constant effort for me to just back off and and look at whoever I'm cooking with. And, and they look at me like, am I doing this right? How long do you want this cooked? How much more salt do we need? And I just use your intuition. And of course I have, you know, very specific, like, let me do it. Let me do it. Walk over there and do it. But I have to, I have to kind of step back and allow that to happen. And without, without a doubt, whatever they make, it's just as good as anything I ever could have made. And maybe they did it a little bit differently, but there's something about just stepping back and letting go. And whether it's a friend or a relationship, allowing them to take the reins, watching them do it, appreciating them for wanting to provide for you in that way. I think, you know, even prior to this experience of falling in love in the kitchen, I dated somebody who made me breakfast in the morning and I started crying. I was like, nobody's ever made me breakfast before. This is the, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. I didn't know that this would be something that was so touching and certainly not necessary and not important, but I was so touched that he made me, you know, pesto scrambled eggs and coffee. They were great. Yeah. And also, you know, food as a romantic gesture even, right? In any scenario, whether it be bringing your lover breakfast one morning because you feel like doing something special or having a dinner plan when they get home, any of that stuff is so appreciated by everybody. That's just a great romantic gesture that doesn't take a lot because everyone's going to (laughs) eat eventually, you know? Yeah. Even my roommate situation now, I live with my, you know, my best friend and my god sister and something I think that's so cute that we do is we bring each other coffee in the morning. Whoever's awake first, which is you know, usually me because I like getting up early, but I know how much she appreciates it when I bring her coffee in bed. And so every morning I'm so excited to do that tiny little thing for her and I don't have to cook it or prepare it. You know, I'm just grinding the beans and sticking them in the French press, but there's something about the thought of providing for her and giving her nourishment in the form of caffeine that, uh, that, that connects us and starts us off you know, on the right foot each morning. Yeah. Well, you're bound to have a great roommate relationship with that, with that move for sure. (laughs) (laughs) What would you, and maybe you've already answered it, but you know, what influenced your understanding and passion for food the most? Kind of a loaded question, I guess, but any thoughts around that? Yeah. And, and again, I think it's, it's my understanding of how much it relates to just connecting with people and how much I love people. I'm also an artist at heart and it's it's creative for me. It's sort of food is what touches on all the bases. It's it's fun, it's creative, it's intimate, it's romantic, it's silly, and it's an opportunity, no matter which way you look at it, whether I'm cooking it or learning about how it feels in my body. And even since I finished the book, I've learned so much more about your thoughts and your moods and how it affects your digestion and I'm really starting to understand and I just, it's fascinating to me. I just want to do research on it all day long. I want to study it and experiencing it, but having a meal with somebody you love and laughing and connecting with them in a, you know, beautiful outside setting, eating food that you both enjoy, you can't wait to talk and catch up and see each other changes the way you digest your food compared to say, you know, standing up inhaling food and fluorescent lighting in between work meetings. And that's really interesting to me. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to then, that's kind of my next question or thought, which is, um, and I'm sure you you maybe have a similar experience, but in the past when I had eating issues, sugar addictions, all the junk uh, that went on with that, 
it's, I did inhale food. I didn't, I wasn't mindful. In fact, I don't even know if I chewed food that well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I was actually a really fast eater. And so was my brother and we would just inhale stuff. And I mean, I remember like my mother making comments to us. We'd be out to dinner and she'd be like, you know, it's almost kind of horrible to watch you guys eat this fast. Like it's, it's, it's kind of traumatic. <laughs> you know, and it is, if you're really, if you've been with someone who's like a really fast eater inhaling it, you're out to a nice dinner. It does seem a little bit <laughs> sort of too, too caveman-ish. <laughs> and I notice now, especially now that, you know, I'm bond, beyond so many health issues, it's not just mindful. I'm such a slower eater and I'm more of a mindful eater. Like I really am appreciating those textures and, um, and back to broccoli, actually, I don't eat that much broccoli, but I did have some the other night and I, I, I had this moment in chewing it where I was like, I don't think I've chewed a piece of broccoli this well for this long <laughs> ever. Like, but something about my approach to food has obviously changed natural where it's just become so much more mindful. Do you feel that as well? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a struggle. And I was at a dinner party the other night and I was just intentionally eating so slowly. And the person next to me whispered into my ear, you eat just like my brother. He eats so slowly and so mindfully. And I looked at him and I was like, I don't know if that was a compliment or you were dissing me. I'm not sure what that was, but thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate yeah. that because I would have already eaten the entire plate, including the glassware. <laughs> but I'm really making a point to slow down, to chew my food and to notice when I'm full. I mean, I'm still learning that every day and I, you know, I don't do it. I eat in the car occasionally and I'm sure I'm rushed sometimes. And I know that's, that's the case for all of us, but I'm still learning when I'm full. And I really can only start to notice that when I'm eating slowly and when I give my body a chance to receive the signal from my stomach to my brain that says like, all right, we've had enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes some experimentation. And then, you know, as you know, then you do have one of those moments where you're quick and you're rushed and you scarf down food and then half an hour goes by and you're like, ooh, mistake. I overate. I overate. Now I'm feeling gross, you know? And so, yeah, it takes time, but I feel like a new person with being able to kind of enjoy Cause you know what? My enjoyment of food is better Yeah, that I'm slower and more mindful about it. Um, let's talk about you had, I want to ask you, you, you took like a six month writing break cause you had some health issues. Um, can you share that experience with us? Yes. Um, I, and I write about this in the book. I know you and I have talked about it on a personal level, but, uh, there was a time about two years ago when I was learning a lot more about nutrition and for a hot minute sort of decided that everything I ate was poisonous. Um, that being a vegan was dangerous. Being paleo was dangerous. Being vegetarian was dangerous. Everything I put in my body was a little bit scary. So I think I went through a period of just eating just so clean and so restricted, um, that, you know, maybe I was lacking nutrients on the one hand, but on the other, I just don't think I was having fun with food. I think it was a source of anxiety. It was a source of discomfort. Um, it was an obligation instead of something that that's true for me, which is that I enjoy the experience of eating and cooking. And although I was eating healthy things for me, um, just was not in the right mindset for my body to receive those things. And I got a little bit sick. I felt constantly tired. I got really thin. I didn't have my period for six months. Um, I was bruising a lot. My hair started thinning and I, I liked the way I looked, but I was miserable and I had some blood work done and had some doctors tell me that I was not, I was not very healthy and just immediately stopped writing after that. 
I, I thought I was being a hypocrite. Who, who am I to tell other people how to eat and cook and live when I'm my, myself, I'm not doing it. And it was a conversation I had with somebody because I still talked about it. Like I was writing, I told people how excited I was and I told people how, like what my recipes were and kind of the message I wanted to share. But I also shared with them that I had stopped writing and every single one of them said, but that makes you human. You know, I know social media says otherwise, but like Oprah, Oprah's not perfect every day. And that makes you human. Like, that's okay. People are going to be more open to listening to you if they know that you're human and that you've struggled with some of these things too. And it was hearing that, having that reflected back to me time and time again, where I thought maybe I just put this in the book. Maybe instead of just starting my writing practice again, maybe I put a story about this where I was like, hey, if I'm being honest, I wasn't listening to myself for a hot minute and look where it got me. But how can I move through it And how can I share that experience with people so that they can learn from it too? It's so honest. And it's often the case where it's a little bit of the art imitating life, life imitating art thing, right? You get on a project and then you're like, ooh, damn, I got to read my own book. Hello. Totally, (laughs) totally. Yeah, which is a great thing. And, you know, it's so awesome because in that process, you, you know, I'm glad you kept with it because as you see on the journey and the train, you ended up where you ended up, you needed to take that. But I'm also it's great that you were able to listen to yourself. And that's another message to everyone else, because sometimes you are in the middle of a project or something. And if it's not right for you in that moment, you sometimes you don't need to power through it because it's not right. And my intuition was telling me to eat different foods and to get a little bit more sleep and to stop doing this and to start doing that. And I was completely ignoring my intuition, ironically, as I wrote a book about cultivating your intuition. Totally. And I'm such a huge fan of that because it's like, uh, when you don't follow your gut instincts and your intuition, it always backfires and <laughs> in my, in my experience. And also too, like with being intuitive, uh, the, one of the reasons that I, I would love to do one of the like paleo chef delivery programs or like one of those things, or I'd love to be the person that can shop on a Sunday for the week. But the reason I don't is because I crave day to day. There are days when totally right. Like some days I'm like, you know what? I'm into cucumbers this week. Like nobody's business. I don't know (laughs) what it is, but then I, so I go along with that. I mean, there was a time a couple weeks ago where I was like, who knew dates are in my life. All of a sudden I'm interested in date salads and my kid, like I went through a date spree. There must've been something that my body was like, eat that. Um, usually after menstruation, I crave pate. I'm assuming it's my body's way of being like, you could use a little iron. Oh my gosh. But I, I really go by what I crave. And so I can't kind of do those programs because they don't work with my, you know what I mean? And I'm sure you feel that way too. And you probably wouldn't, you'd probably prescribe, you know, go with your gut. So that's why I kind of like shop every day or every couple of days. Cause I might think that I want salmon tomorrow, but then tomorrow comes and I really want a steak. I, I just, you know, Right. Right. I, and also, you know, I kind of, I kind of geek out when I get to go grocery shopping because it's like, sometimes I walk in there with the idea of here's what I'm making tonight. For example, I'm going to go grocery shopping this evening and I really want to try this almond butter pad thai slow cooked chicken. And again, I read a couple of different recipes that kind of inspired this, but I don't like peanut butter. I don't really eat soy sauce. I don't like coconut milk. Like a couple of these things I was like, all right, how can I do this in a way? And so I'm excited to go grocery shopping tonight. And I could very easily shop for the rest of the week, but that's not going to serve me because tomorrow I might not want salmon. Like you said, I might be really into cucumbers on Wednesday and I'm, I'm just letting that be okay. 
And thank heavens there's, you know, three different farmers markets throughout the week around me because I can still shop at the farmers market and sort of be be picky each day. And to speak to your point about the delivery services, I think those are really great opportunities for people that are really pressed for time, even though I kind of say that's not a good excuse in my book. Um, but my friend Lolita in New York, she did that a couple of times when she got more comfortable cooking. And, you know, at the time she didn't have my book to reference. Uh, but she like ended up making duck tacos. And I came over and I was like, wow, these are amazing. Like, how can I make my own version of duck tacos? I wasn't going to follow their recipe. I wasn't going to use exactly what they used. And in some senses, it doesn't really allow you to explore and experiment unless you start to add things from your kitchen, which would also be fun and fine to complicate the dishes a little bit. But I think it was a really, really good stepping stone for her. But, you know, now she has my book that she can follow and experiment and, you know, she can call me anytime for questions. Yeah, I also love, I mean, how many times have you been at a grocery store and had an idea for something and you're like on the iPhone, like Googling a variety of recipes to see what variations of things you might want. I mean, that's to me is so much. Every time. Yeah. And it's so much fun. And, and, and again, I have wasted a lot of money and food on failures, uh, had a couple failures recently. And, you know, I, even though I am a good cook and I've been doing it a long time, you know, you're still going to have those moments where you try and you fail and you go, all right, um, that wasn't right to do in the crock pot lesson learned. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like, actually, I'll just throw a tip out there for some people. One of the things that I did learn about the crock pot was, you know, oftentimes people just throw all the ingredients in and it ends up actually being better if you saute some of those ingredients first, like onions and things like that. You know, I've made a lot of those fails where I didn't really realize and some of the flavors come together better when you sear the meat first and you saute the onions before throwing them in the crock pot, which is something my brother kind of taught me about. And so then my dishes got better. But, you know, little nuances like that, you know, you can only learn from from failures, and um, I, I think this is a great book for people to just, whether you're new to cooking or you're not, it's great. And I love the tagline. It's cook with your hands, laugh with your belly, trust your intuition. I love the idea of, you know, and cooking with your hands. So that's another thing too, when talking about kale and kale salads, right? In order to get those right, oftentimes you have to get your hands in there with the oil and massage the leaves to make them moister. You know what I'm talking about. It's that tactile experience that can be really fun and then also much better for the actual dish which you know the concept of massaging kale is so hysterical to me but it's definitely a thing and that goes for a lot of other foods you know to be I don't even like using salt out of a salt shaker because to me it's much easier to sense how much I want if I'm touching it to sprinkle it a certain way and every salt shaker salt grinder it comes out a little differently and with spices I often just like take the top off don't use the little holes on top and just pinch it. Use my fingers. I kind of enjoy that my hands smell like curry and cumin and garlic and pepper and chili flakes and, you know, deliciousness every single time I'm done eating. And I guess that grosses some people out, but I, I associate certain smells with people and experiences and meals that I love. What would you, what would you say, because I want to ask you about Primal Kitchen in a second, even though we you discussed it in depth with Kyle on episode 164, but what would you say are some top takeaways from your book that people can expect to gain from it? I guess it would be more in the form of like suggestions or lessons or challenges for people. And it's just like experiment. If you can release that fear that you have to fail or to mess up or to do something wrong, again, probably don't do your first test run with 
filet and a dinner of 12 people. Practice with a friend, a roommate, a sibling, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Make something small. Don't spend a lot of money doing it, but build your confidence that way. So the takeaway would just be to freaking experiment. Get your hands dirty in the kitchen and just be there with the food. Another thing would be to just relax, not be attached to any perfection or any result with the food, but be a part of the entire experience. Grocery shopping can be fun. I've made friends with everyone that works in my grocery store because I see them all the time. But, you know, we joke around and I forget things and I ask them questions. And cooking for me starts with that is just connecting with people as I'm shopping for food, getting home, deciding I'm going to wash my zucchini this way or cut it that way, try something new. And then trying something new, you know, I have my, my staples for sure. The things I'm, I'm good at, the things I love, the things that all of my friends and family love. Sometimes I burn those things too, but just relaxing, stepping back and trying, play, have fun, be creative. Like I know those are all cliche things, but why aren't we all doing them in the kitchen then? Yeah. Or in life, like even we were talking about earlier about, you know, so I might just be into cucumbers this week or something. And the same goes for you know, I think when people learn about paleo primal or they're trying to correct their health, they just want to be like, am I doing it right? Right. You know what I mean? And it is about, you are going to make some mistakes. You know, there's going to be times where you're going to eat too much fat and you're going to go, oh, okay. Uh, too much for me there. I think I need to lessen it. And all of the intuitive components that, that come with that. And I, I don't know. I just feel like part of it also is people feel that every meal has to be a protein, a fat, a carbohydrate, like they have to have some exact macros on a plate. And some days you may not be interested in that much protein. And I would suggest people to follow that. There might be a day when you're like, I don't feel like eating any meat. Don't feel like you have to just because you're in a paleo primal paradigm. That might be a vegetarian day for you. That's okay too. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on everybody just relax and lessen up on it and try to get more into the intuition. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the good thing about my book is people, the first thing people ask me is like, is it paleo? And it's like, well, it's paleo by default, just because I only cook with good quality, unprocessed ingredients. And it's also gluten free. And most of it's vegetarian, simply because I give you the option to sear a steak and throw it on your butter lettuce salad or make your, uh, you know, vegetable fried rice and put a piece of salmon on top of it. So the book is geared towards even if you make the recipes as they are in the book, pretty much any way you eat, you can enjoy it. And I even provide substitutions. You know, I give you suggestions for some of the recipes just to get the juices flowing. If you don't like walnuts, maybe throw some pine nuts in there. And if you don't like goat cheese, try feta. If you don't eat, you know, if kale hurts your stomach like it hurts mine, maybe do the same salad, but use arugula. So the book itself and the recipes in it are geared towards every diet, every lifestyle, and everything can be tweaked. And hopefully if I haven't offered it to you specifically on each page, then after reading some of the book, you learn that it doesn't really matter what my recipe was. It's essentially just a, a handful of ingredients that I chose to use and a suggestion as to how to prepare it. But like, take those things and mess it up. I, I'm not even, I'm not sure if this ended up in the book or not, but ideally at the end of all this, I would love people to start emailing me like, hey, I took your kale salad recipe and I turned it into like cucumber, avocado, grapefruit, kale wraps. Like teach me something about my own food. I would love to hear feedback. 
I love that. I love that. And um, let's transition into quickly talking about Primal Kitchen Restaurant, which you and your brother are opening up in Culver City this summer. It'll be the first Los Angeles, uh, Southern California-based Primal Kitchen Restaurant. And it's your franchise. And I know we talked about this really in depth in the last podcast, but I just want to touch on a few things because the Primal Kitchen Restaurant is sort of going to have something for everybody. Um, not only just a, an area of a cafe where you, there's books and other healthy foods that are not necessarily Primal Kitchen brands, so other brands of Halo Granola, et cetera, and you've, you can go in and get a juice and you can sit down and have a meal. Um, give, us a little, give us a little bit of, about that. I know there's some really exciting recipes you and Kyle talked about on the last one, but you did bring up waffles in this conversation. And I will say the photo of you and Kyle in front of these like amazing <laughs> waffles, uh, which looks totally non primal, but I, I'm definitely going to come into the restaurant just to try that. Um, I have not perfected that myself. Um, what are you most excited about with this opening? So it's interesting because what I'm most excited about with the restaurant is also what I'm most excited about with the book. And it's just sharing the experience of putting good quality, delicious, nutrient-dense food in your body in a safe, fun space. And whether I'm asking people to do that in their own kitchen, in the privacy of their own home, or inviting people to come say hi at the restaurant, grab a smoothie, grab a coffee, sit down for dinner, have some beer and wine, the, the intention is just the same. The intention is to grow a community of healthy, conscious, like-minded people and to connect them, to expand that. And even further than that, uh, I think it's great about the restaurant is we have a kid's menu, but it's not chicken fingers, hot dogs, and spaghetti. It's the same thing as on the adult menu, just maybe smaller portions with simpler ingredients. So it might not have 10 ingredients, but we have like a spaghetti squash with meatballs. And I'm so excited to share healthy, good quality food with young kids And by the same token with the book, having young people, babysitters, parents, grandparents reading my book, and then being able to share that with their children, sit your, you know, sit your two-year-old or your 10-year-old on the counter and have them chop something, you know, give them a dull knife, make sure it's a soft ingredient, but have them tear up the lettuce, have them mix something together with you and, you know, be careful, obviously, teach them the rules of the sharp knives and the hot stove. But as a people, as a race, as a community, as a species, we really need to continue this health movement and to get people excited about good food. And I know that the book and the restaurant are going to provide a space for people to do that and for people to enjoy it. Well, and I love the fact that you know, no matter what, when you walk into a Primal Kitchen restaurant, that nothing in there is crap. Right. And that's really important because there's a lot of great restaurants out there that have wonderful, healthy options. That doesn't mean it's not touching a crappy oil somewhere in the kitchen, though, even though it's a, a, a nice piece of salmon. And so it's so nice to know that all the oils and everything is is healthy. You're going to one place where kids and everybody are not going to suffer in any way. <laughs> so Right. And if you're, if you're a foodie or if you're a chef or if you're a picky, unhealthy eater that likes to order pizza every day, you know, challenge accepted. Come and try something that you're going to love. You don't have to eat healthy food for every meal, but... If I can get, you know, one organic paleo shepherd's pie in your body a week, that'll be fine for me. Yeah, that's right. Even if just once a week you stopped in there and just sort of switched it up, I, I guarantee they'll probably just keep coming back because they'll feel so good after that meal. <laughs> they'll probably question. But yeah, you're right. Any any amount of delivery we can get to people of good meals um, 
is going to be the best way to to share this movement. I love that both the vision of the restaurant and the cookbook are are right in line with each other. And I, I will put all the links up in the show notes, but it is uh, for the Primal Kitchen restaurant anyway. You can go to Facebook. It's at Primal Kitchen Culver City. Or on Instagram, it's Primal Kitchen Culver City 1, the number one. And then on Instagram, you are at Kitchen Intuition. And of course, we can find your book. I encourage everyone to get a copy. It's a great book. It's beautiful. It's got wonderful photos. It's really well laid out with great stories. Uh, I feel it's kind of right for everybody. And it's on Amazon right now. Uh, and you can also find it at primalblueprintpublishing.com as well. And I'm sure as it goes forward, we'll be able to see it in Barnes & Nobles and other places. Is there anything you'd love to leave our audience with before we go? No, I think I think that's good. I'm just really excited to share this message with people and to even more challenge to be vulnerable in, in sharing my story. There's certainly more to it. And whether it's through another cookbook or more articles or interviews or podcasts or blogs, every step of this project, of this process is helping me heal, is helping me understand and expand. And I'm really, really excited to share that with people to help continue to heal myself, but to continue to heal others and and help them heal others as well. So I'm just stoked about this. It feels really vulnerable, um, but also really exciting. And I can't wait to to hear some feedback and to to be challenged some more. I love it. Thank you so much. And again, Devin Sisson, and the book is called Kitchen Intuition. Go get your copy today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely talk soon. Of course. Thank you so much, Elle. Have a nice day. You too. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.